Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span? And calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? Weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him? And taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? In our previous study of this chapter, we focused on the good news that Isaiah was presenting to the children of Judah who had, who had already been given a, a glimpse of the bad news that they should be expecting in the form of capture, exile, and captivity by and through the Babylonians. Those Jews who would be facing that long and difficult journey, they were few in number. And when you consider it, they were they're really only a remnant. And they would have experienced in their course in the course of their time the victories, you see. The victories of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and eventually the Persians. And I do mention the victories of the Assyrians because I know that even though the Assyrians were stopped at Jerusalem, uh, they inflicted quite a lot of damage to the northern kingdom of, Ju- of, of Israel and to much of Judah, the southern kingdom. But were halted, of course, in, in, in Jerusalem. But later on, of course, the Babylonians would come and, and then, of course, destroy the city of Zion. And it would have seemed as though the, the false gods of those nations and of those heathens were, were stronger, you see, than the God of Israel. It would have seemed that way. Here they were, the people of God, chained and, and carried on into another land to become slaves. It would seem that way, wouldn't it? That the false gods of these heathens were stronger than the God of Israel. I mean, that's the bad news here. But the prophet, the prophet Isaiah reminded them of the greatness of their God. That is what we find in chapter 40. Isaiah is reminding the people of God about the greatness of their God. The greatness of God. The greatness of Jehovah. The greatness of Yahweh. The Lord God, you see. And when they would, have, when they would behold the greatness of the true living God, they would then see everything in life in His proper perspective. And folks, that's the message for us as well today. That when we behold the greatness of the true and living God, then we will see in life everything in its proper perspective. Everything is going to be in the proper perspective when we see Him as great. When we see Him as glorious. When we see Him as, as, as God in all of His majesty, in all of His wonders, in all of His awe, in all, in, in all of His... his, his, his um, Mercy and all of His kindness and all of His grace. You cannot exclude anything about the grace and the glory of God. Already we've heard the, the words of the prophets. I'm sorry, the word of the prophet in verses 9 through 11. Go back there just for a moment and read this, verses 9 through 11. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, 
Get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him. How many times do you see the word behold there? Three times. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work before Him. Verse 11. He will feed His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with His arm and carry them in His bosom and, and gently lead those who are with young. Three times in this passage. We see the word behold. We're given more, you see, than an invitation to see God. I said last week that when it says behold, it doesn't mean to just get a catching glimpse of God. It means to see Him completely, see Him fully, and to continue to see Him. But in all of this, this is not just an invitation to to behold Him. We're commanded to behold Him. We're commanded to know the greatness and the character of our God. Folks, as believers in Jesus Christ, as believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, folks, we are called and commanded to see the greatness and to know the greatness of God. We are called and commanded to see the character and to know the character of our God. He's made that clear in His Word. And we are to see that and to know that over the long term, over the long haul. It is our lifelong mission. It is to be our lifelong mission and passion to know the character of God, to know the greatness of God. Is God not great tonight? Is God not great in the things that He does? Is God not great in giving us everything that we need for life and godliness through His Son, Jesus Christ? The greatness of God cannot be put aside, set aside, put in a box and left for once a week uh, type of service. It is not there for just, you know, two times a week. It is an everyday thing, 24-7. I know we hear it's one of those cliches, you know, know, 24-7, you know. 24-7-365, and once every four years, 366. But it's a constant thing, isn't it? To know the greatness of God. He's never not great and He's never less than great. He's always great. He's always merciful. He's always kind. He's always holy. He's always holy. He's always true. Is this not our lifelong mission? Is it not our lifelong passion? We are also commanded to behold the God who is coming. Notice back there in verse 10, Behold, the Lord shall come. Well, He's come once, and guess what? He said, I'm coming again. We are commanded to behold the God who is coming with power and rewards. But as great as this God is, as great as our God is, He also comes, as we saw last time, verse 11, He comes as a gentle shepherd. A gentle shepherd who will feed his flock with loving care. This is also a part of his greatness. It's not any less because it's not that powerful. No, it's, it's, it's just as great his mercy. It's just as great his love. It's just as great his healing. It's just as great his, his, his care. His tenderness. He 
He comes to feed His flock with loving care, gathering and comforting and strengthening them in the most safe and tender place. Where is that? Where is the most safe and tender place? Where does He say? He says He takes us in His arm and He brings us to His bosom. talks of His heart. The safest place, the most tender place is the heart of God. And that's where He draws us. And as we enter into the next section of this chapter, with this in mind, the children of Judah are now exhorted to behold the God who is over all that He has created and His authority over all that He has created. He's the God over all. He has the authority over all. That is why we're to see it that way. God over all, authority over all. And verse 12 says, Who? And, and this is how we behold. By, by looking at these rhetorical questions. Who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand? Has that, have any of you measured the hollow of his hand? Or the waters in the hollow of his hand? I read an interesting thing about uh, the water on this earth. You know, it's, uh, much of the earth, of course, is, is water. But if we were to compress down into one level all of the land mass, then water would cover the earth by about a mile and a half. That's how much water is on this earth. And he's measured it in the hollow of his hand. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span. Calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Who has weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Well, none of us have. No one. You see now the greatness of God in in who He is in all of His creation? That's where we're aiming at here, what we're aiming at to, to understand. You see, it is the Lord Himself who speaks in power and majesty here, placing Himself in direct contrast with the helpless. Remember going back to the book of Job, where, where, where God asked Job, of course, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you? Job, as good as he was, still questioned God, just like we do. And God sometimes has to say, hey, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? A a, a thought keeps coming back to mind here. You know, that thought about, uh, does the clay tell the potter how to make him? Does the clay tell the potter what to do? The potter has full control. He's the creator. God is the creator. Who are we to tell God what to do? Who are we to measure God in in such a way that we we, we bring God down to our image? That's the problem with the world today. They want God to be in their image. But our God cannot be limited. So the Lord speaks in power and majesty, placing Himself in direct contrast with the helpless do nothing because they are nothing man-made idols of the heathen. He's put Himself in contrast with the idols of the heathen to whom sadly many of the Jews had turned. They had turned to the idols of the heathen. And God is saying to them, Hey, you know who I am? Why did you turn to them? These little idols, can they measure the waters of the earth in the hollow of their hand? How great is our God? 
And how prevailing is He over all of His creation? That He's measured the waters in the hollow of His hand. That, that He's measured heaven with a span. The span from the point of the, uh, of the thumb to the, the little finger. That's the span. There's a theological term for these descriptions. Measuring in the hollow of His hand. Uh, measuring with a span. The theological term for these descriptions is anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. Fancy 50 cent word. Anthropos, of course, means man. Morph uh, has to do with change. You know. but, the, but the idea of this anthropomorphism is this. It means to speak of God in human terms so that we can have somewhat of an understanding of who He is and what He does. So we're given things like this to get the idea that He's awesome. But, but let me tell you this, He's much greater than, than He's even described. He's much greater than He's described. This only gives us a little bit of a picture, you see. So in direct contradiction to Mormon theology and others who have seen visions of 900 feet Jesus, have you ever heard of that? Do you know somebody saw a vision of a 900 foot Jesus? blows my mind, you know. Man, that's, that's pretty high. Of course, Mormon theology is that there is a, there is a God, and, and, but, but He's real. God is the flesh like you and me. And one day, you know, if we follow their beliefs, then we can one day have, you know, be God of our own universe and, and we can have, you know... Well, in contradiction to that, it would behoove us to learn from and believe Scripture. Just believe Scripture. Because in John chapter 4, verse 24, when Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well... There in Samaria. He told, he told her this. God is spirit. You see that? God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There it is. God is spirit. So the, the descriptions that were given is given for our understanding to see how great God is. But he's even greater than what we can see. He's even greater than what our imaginations could ever conjure. We should, in fact, stand in awe of His power and glory and majesty. We should stand in awe of the power of God, the glory of God, the majesty of God. Which, which one of us is, is, is bigger than God? Is, is there anybody here? Which, which one of us is bigger than God? Which one of us can measure the heavens with the span of our hand? Which one of us can know exactly how many grains of dust there are on the earth? Because that's the next part of the verse. Calculated the dust of the measure. In, in, God knows exactly every grain. Did you know that? God knows exactly every grain of dust that there is. If in fact our galaxy is so big that it would take millions of years to cross, as scientists have said, that tells us that our God is pretty big. That tells us that our God is bigger than, cre- than, than all of His creation. And if that is the case, He could certainly handle all the trials and the tribulations and the challenges that we bring to Him. Don't you think? Don't you think he could handle them? Don't you think he could deal with them? Being that he's bigger than the, the, than the universe or bigger than the galaxies or bigger than all of the creation that he made, which we ourselves cannot even see the very end of. And scientists have done their best to try to see into the universe. They've tried to see into all of the things that are way out there and they build bigger and, and mightier and stronger telescopes. And they keep bringing it closer and closer and they keep seeing that it's just infinite. Why? Because God is huge. And He's bigger than His creation. So can you, can you imagine? Oh, you can't imagine. It's hard to imagine. 
Turn to Luke chapter 12 for just a moment. To give us just some indication of how He knows us. In Luke 12 verse 4, Jesus said, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that have no more than they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear Him who, after He has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear Him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Two copper coins, you buy, you know, five sparrows. That's not a whole lot. Yet God knows those sparrows. But the very heads of your head, the very hairs of your head, sorry, the very hairs of your head, not the very heads of your hair, (laughs) but the very hairs of your head are all numbered, numbered. Now don't go and pull one of your hairs out and go to some electron microscope somewhere where you can see if there's a number on it. But interestingly enough, DNA has its numbering system. God knows us that well. Even those that may not have too much hair. Okay, anyway. He knows how many are there. And he says, do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You're of more value. You know why? You were created in the image of God. More value. Going back to Isaiah 40, look at verse 13 now. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Now look, look at the, the, the sense and direction of these questions. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or, or as his counselor has taught him, well, you know, does God have a teacher? Does God have a counselor? With whom, verse 14, with whom did he take counsel? And, and who instructed him? And who taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and, and showed him the way of understanding? Rhetorical question, why? Because there's only one answer. Nobody did. No one taught him. No one counsels him. No one's bigger than him. No one's older than him. Why? Because he's eternal. There is not only great power in God, there is also a great amount of wisdom. And again, it behooves us to go to the God who is the God of wisdom for wisdom. James says in James chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of. He doesn't say Charlie. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Why? Because he's full of wisdom. So there's a great amount of wisdom here. But there is one great distinction between the knowledge of God. Please listen. There's a great uh, distinction between the knowledge of God and the knowledge of men. A great distinction. That distinction is this. God has the perfect wisdom to use that knowledge. God has the perfect wisdom to use that knowledge. All of these questions, as I said before, are rhetorical. They only have one answer. No one's been able to measure the waters in the hollow of his hand. No one's been ever able to measure the span 
of all that he's created. No one's ever taught God. No one's ever counseled him. Why? Because God is God and there is no other. You see, the Lord is so wise that he doesn't need counsel. He doesn't need instruction. He doesn't need a teacher and anyone to show him the way of understanding. And if he did, he wouldn't be God. Clear and simple. If he needed a teacher, if he needed someone to create him, if he needed some, then he wouldn't be God. Then we'd have to look for the one that created him, right? But he's the creator. He's all wisdom. He's all knowledge. He's all understanding. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. He's all wise. He's God. This is the reason that Paul uses this passage in the, in the book of Romans chapter 11 when he says in verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord or, or who has become his counselor? Get to knowing this God. Get to know his, his character. Get to know his power. Get to know who he is. Because who's known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Who or what can ever be equal to God? You see, can anything or anyone be equal to God? You know, it's one thing that we have people running around this world today saying, you know, that if you, if you follow this instruction or if you go in this path, you can be God too. I don't want the responsibility. Number one, I don't want the responsibility if I can't be. And secondly, if I do already know what I am and I know who I am, and, and certain, nobody wants me to be God. Let me add one other thing. When I, when I look at, at Psalms like Psalm 50, where, you know, and, and, you know, where it talks about you know, Elohims, you know, God is actually saying, you know, your Elohims, which are your judges and your kings and all, you know, they, they're, they're faulty. There's only one God that's Elohim. There's only one God that is God. There's only one God that is Lord. So who can be equal to God? What can be equal to God, let alone be greater than God? Can anything? Can anyone? I want you to remember and to consider well this next verse, verse 15. Isaiah 40, verse 15. Behold, and there's the word behold again. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. Now those of you that have traveled extensively around the world or somewhere, you know, close to around the world, when, when you get up in that plane, 35,000, 45,000 feet high, I don't know, 35,000 feet, you get up there pretty high, you can look down and you know, everything looks pretty small on this earth. It's a drop in the bucket. It's a drop in the bucket. The expanse, the sky. We've all seen the pictures of... You know, the guys going up in the space and they take a picture looking back on the earth and we think, oh my goodness. It's a drop in the bucket. If you consider all of the heavens, if you consider all of the, of the galaxies and all of the universes that may exist, which is just one universe as it were. But it says, behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and, and are counted as the small dust on the scales. <laughs> just Dust. Anybody clean dust today off of anything? Just, just me and Sandy, is that it? And, oh, and, and Tootie also, and Judy, okay. Just a few of us clean dust. Tomorrow y'all clean a little dust too. We, we're cleaning dust all the time, aren't we? We don't even know where it comes from. It just dust just appears. It's like, 
spontaneous generation. And there's dust. It's everywhere. We, we, sometimes we get so frustrated we don't even clean anymore. And we just say, no, that's the new look. God knows that dust. It's amazing what God knows. Even the smallness of it, God is aware. It says, look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. Nations, mounds of land are nothing to God. Nations are as a drop in the bucket. Listen, North Korea, as well as China, and there's been others, of course, Cuba does it, and every communist country does it, uh, that are big enough. Uh, they continue to parade their military hardware. You've seen those pictures, you know, where they bring all the tanks and all the, you know, the missiles, and, and they all come and they're all marching, you know, and they all look, you know, I mean, and there's thousands of them, and they fill these big fields and big stadiums and, and all. They're just, they're showing off. That's all they're doing. They're just showing off. And, and they just continue to parade their military hardware before people in the world to show off their strength, to show off their power. But in comparison to God, you see, all of that muscle amounts to nothing. That is what this text is saying. All of that muscle amounts to nothing. It is like a drop in a bucket compared to God's glory, compared to God's greatness. Just a drop in the bucket. All that military might. People are boasting that they have, you know, Nuclear capabilities. It's scary. Yeah, if you've been with us on Sunday nights, you know, to see Chuck Missler on the, on the Prophecy DVDs, you know, you, you can kind of go, whoa, you know. Man, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Uh, now we're even worried about, you know, tainted uh, toothpaste, you know, from China. I'm not trying to pick on China. Well, maybe I have a little bit. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, there's all kinds of weirdness going on in this world. And everybody wants control of some sort, you know, and everybody wants to say, well, we're a nuclear power or whatever. It's a drop in the bucket to our God. That's the point of all of this. Isaiah, uh, go forward to Isaiah 46 for just a moment. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Listen to what God says of His glory and of His greatness. He says, remember the former things of old... For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. So God is telling us a little bit about himself. Declaring the end from the beginning. In other words, I know the end. I know the beginning. I know the beginning. I know the end. I know it all because I am eternal. I don't exist within your time continuum, in other words, is what he's saying. That's how great this God is. And then he says, And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. That's an awesome God. That's a great God. That's a God that wants us to know Him. And yet in our desire to know Him, we're never going to know everything that we want to know about Him, but we're going to know more as we stay in relation with Him, stay in communion with Him, stay in fellowship with Him, you see. But that's a great thing that he says. He says, I am God, there's no other. I'm God, there's none like me. Everything pales in comparison to me. So who or what can ever truly compare to God? Let's get back to our text, Isaiah 40, verses 16 and 17. Notice what he says here. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, 
nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are not as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Now, verses 16 and 17, very important here. Lebanon is mentioned because it has tremendous forests, mighty forests of cedar. Certainly a lot of other types of trees, but they also have this, this, uh, this fame, as it were. Biblically, I mean, for years, Lebanon has been known to have the mighty force of cedar. And what, it, what the prophet is telling us here is that Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. There's not enough wood, in other words. There is not enough wood, wood in Lebanon, and there aren't enough animals in Lebanon enough to satisfy God with burnt offering. That's how awesome God is. You see, now, did the Jews offer burnt offerings and sacrifices? They did. Why? Because they were being obedient to God. God told them to do it. The point of this is to show us that there, you know, even you could take all of the, you could take all of the forest, every tree that's in, in Lebanon, every beautiful cedar, bring it down and, and, and use it for fire, and that fire's not enough. That's how awesome God is. The fire's not enough for the burnt offering, and the animals are not enough for a burnt offering for the awesomeness of God. That, that's, that's just the picture that we're being given here. But then he says, all nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. So consider that man's best efforts could never satisfy our holy God, our glorious God. Man's best efforts can never satisfy. No matter what man tries to do, we can never satisfy the holiness and the glory of God. I want you to notice now again in verse 17 that the nations are before him as nothing and that they are counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. Now, I want you to notice that this, uh, he does not say about his creation. He doesn't say that about his creation. He says it about the nations. That is a significant point here. Because his greatness and his glory is over against the arrogance and the pride of nations against him, counting them lower than creation itself. So the nations and various rogue states today that threaten the world and cause such terror in the hearts of peoples everywhere, and, and, and we're all familiar with that, aren't we? Every morning we get up to see what's taking place in Iraq. We get up and we wonder, what's happening in Iran? We get up and wonder, is there something else happening in, in Britain or in, in Scotland? Is there anything going to happen here? Do we get up and we find ourselves like we did on September 11, 2001, surprised by what's taking place? We get up feeling that terror. See, that, that's what terrorism is. That's what terrorism seeks to do. But all of that, think about the statement I'm trying to give to you right now. The nations and those rogue states that threaten the world today and cause such terror in the hearts of people everywhere are no problem for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are no problem for our God whatsoever. And this is why in verse 18 of our text, in, verse, uh, uh, in chapter 40, verse 18, it says, To whom then will you liken God? To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to Him? This is a very loaded question, by the way. And it is a very pointed question. Because then He gives this description. It is an ironic, it is a, you know, facetious, in a, I guess, a, a description. He says, the workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the, and the silversmith casts silver chains. 
Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. In other words, it, it, they choose a type of wood that, that uh, doesn't rot like uh, softer woods. It's, in other words, a very hard wood. So this is what they're going to make their idol out of. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution, you know, silver and gold, chooses a tree that will not rock or rot because he wants something that's strong, you know, because he wants his idol to be strong. And then it says, he seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. I don't want my idol to fall if, you know, if anything happens. You know. We have a little earthquake. I want that idol to stand up. <laughs> kind of, it's a strange little passage here. But do the likenesses of idols, do the likenesses of idols belonging to the nations and the peoples made with men's hands, do the likenesses of these idols compare to God at all? Do they compare to God at all? Go all the way back to the book of Exodus. Go all the way back to the time when Moses was, was spending that time alone with God and he hadn't come back down to the people. And the people were getting anxious and they were getting impatient. And so they come to Moses' brother Aaron and they said, Look, we, wanna, we, we want you know, to worship a God that we can see. So make us, make us uh, you know, an image of God. And so, more than likely, people carrying out, you know, because they had taken a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the, the stuff out of Egypt, uh, probably had little, little golden calves or little calves, you know, made out of bronze or whatever. And it was out of that that they would make this golden calf. The interesting thing is that they weren't worshiping, they weren't worshiping a, a false god as much as what they were doing was saying, that image we now say is the God that we're supposed to be worshiping. But this is why in the commandments it says, do not make any graven image. You cannot have a picture of God because you don't see him. That's how awesome God is. I struggle when we see a lot of pictures of Jesus, you know, with drawings or whatnot. I mean, you know, it helps a little bit, but I mean... All these images just pale in comparison to who Jesus really was. All these pictures pale in comparison. A any idol, of course, pales in comparison to the God that created the heavens and the earth. So this passage then points out the folly of image worship. It points out the folly of image worship. The Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, intended to arm Israel. He's, he is arming Israel against the temptation to participate in such worship. Because they've already gone through that. They've already done that. That's one of the reasons why they're going into captivity. An idol is nothing. May I say that again? An idol is nothing. What's one of the most popular shows on TV today? American Idol. What a choice of words. What a choice of words. American Idol. I think they should have spelled it I-D-L-E instead of I-D-O-L. But that's my opinion. Take it for what it's worth. An idol is nothing. There is only one God. And the idolatry of the world is based on the corrupted knowledge of that one God. Did you know that? That idolatry of the world is based on the corrupted knowledge of that one God. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold back the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, the truth is there. There are people today going around saying, you know, well, we're, we know, we, we, we're atheists and there just isn't any God. And, you know, we're going to, you know, what all they're doing, they're, they're just suppressing the truth. The truth is there and they're just angry at the truth. Bottom line, that is what atheists do. Because this passage tells us that there are no atheists. Listen carefully. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, hold back, or hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Because, notice, what may be known of God is manifest in them. Or, uh, yeah, for God has shown it to them. So it's been seen. And notice how. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and God is so that they are without excuse. It isn't that there isn't any evidence that there's a God. It is because they just don't want to believe. And they cite all kinds of other things or, you know, well, look at all of these other beliefs and look at the beliefs over here and look at the beliefs over there. Look at how they, they worship gods over here and they only worship one God over there and, and so on and so forth. But they're just suppressing the truth. But notice that image worship, well, we're, getting, we're dealing with that because an image uh, worship is the exchange. What, what image worship is, I should say, is the exchange of God's glory for those idols. The exchange of God's glory for those idols, as Paul continues in verse 21 when he says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into those kind of images. Image worship is the exchange of God's glory for these idols. One of the strangest things, and I think one of the great applications of verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools, has, has, has to do with, with this continued pressing to make relevant and to make right the theory of evolution, which is still, by the way, theory and not fact. But it is treated as fact. And I remember 35, 36 years ago when there were certain tracks that were being gone around, you know. It's a, it, it had a picture, it had a, actually a picture of a, it was a little cartoon track and it had a picture of an of a, of a ape or gorilla and underneath were the words, Our Father. <laughs> That's really smart. You look carefully at, at, at the distinction between man and beasts of any kind. You have to go a long way to try to draw some kind of similarities. There's nothing similar. And so in verses 19 and 20 of our text, Isaiah strongly stresses the absurdity of thinking that the greatness of God 
could be captured in an image cast of iron or skillfully carved from the best of woods. Brings to mind Psalm 115. If you'll turn there and look at verses 1 through 8, it says, Not not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? See, notice the importance of that question. Why should the Gentiles or the heathens say, so where is their God? In other words, we don't see a God. I don't see a God. Do you see a God? Do you see the God of the Jews? Do you see the God of Israel? Do you see Him? So where is their God? You see the point of that question? But our God is in heaven. And here's the answer. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. (laughs) Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Unless you're a ventriloquist. Oh, everybody. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They might stink, but they don't smell. Got the idea? They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. And that's really the key here in verse 8. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. So those who make them are like them. They're like their images. How, How is that? Well, they have mouths, but they don't speak the truth. They have eyes, but they really don't see the truth. They have ears, but they don't hear the truth. They have nose, but they don't really smell. They don't really experience, you know. They have hands, they, they don't handle. The feet they have, they do not walk. What, is that, what else does that describe? It describes somebody as dead. An idol is dead, isn't it? Even if it's a nice piece of carved wood, well, that, uh, that piece of wood is now, you know, disconnected from the source that gave it some sense of life. It's dead. Idol worship, dead. Beware as well of the worship of objects and desires in our days and our times. It's sad that some people will worship crucifixes or crosses. They worship statues. Sometimes they worship churches. Sometimes they worship preachers. Sometimes they worship ambitions and materialism. Sometimes they worship sex and home, loved ones and children. Honestly, listen carefully. Some people worship children their children. It's what you give in exchange for worshiping the true God. Be careful. People worship their cars. People worship their things. But nothing is to be worshipped but one God, the creator of all. Isaiah, verse, uh, Isaiah 40, verse 21, have, have you not known? By the way, these questions now that we come to this, uh, to this point are directed toward Israel. And it says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. 
Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall, they, shall their stock take root in the earth when He will also blow on them and they will wither. And the world will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of His might and the strength of His power. Not one is missing. How could anyone ever doubt the greatness and glory of God, especially those who were chosen by God? How could anyone ever doubt the greatness and the glory of God? You see, there is a sense of anger in Isaiah's tone as he cries out in question of their foolish doings in light of God's glory. Has it not been told you from the beginning? God's grandeur has not only been revealed to Israel. Psalm 19 tells us that it has been revealed to the whole of creation. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Not just to Israel, to all peoples. The heavens declare the glory of God. In Job chapter 12, Job is, 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 is the one speaking here. And he says, But now ask the beast, and they will teach you. And the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you. And the fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? I mean, even the creation... Now, now don't take this so literally that you, you know, when you go fishing... And, and you catch a fish, get it and say, Hey, who created you? And if it speaks back, man, I mean, whoa. That, that'd be a something there. But, yeah, but that'd be great. Daniel, put that on, on video so we can see it. But, uh, you know. But, but, you, but you understand what he's, what he's driving at. He's driving home the very fact that all creation knows. What about we who are, who are supposed to know? All creation awaits the restoration. All creation awaits the coming of the Lord. But what about us who are supposed to know? That is what is being driven here. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this, in whose hand is the life of everything, every living thing, and the breath of all mankind? Now if people would simply understand how all things were created by an all mighty, all-knowing God, they would not think so little of Him. Why is it that people even in the church think so little of God and the greatness of God and the glory of God and the grandeur of God? Why? In verse 22, an interesting observation is made, by the way. Verse 22. It is He, it says, who sits above the circle of the earth. Interesting observation. God sits above the circle of the earth. What is being described here? He's describing the earth's shape. Back when there wasn't any real science, he was describing the shape of the earth given by God so they would know. I mean, this doesn't bode well with a flat earth society. You know that there's still a flat earth society today? They should have had a V8. In the book of Job, there's something else that we need to understand. In the book of Job, we read Job 26, verse 7. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. You know what? That's science. 
Have you seen the pictures of the earth from the, from the astronauts? I don't see any wires. I don't see any kind of platform underneath holding the earth up. Did anybody see it? The earth hangs on nothing. It sounds to me like the Bible has its science right. Throughout history, there have been some quirky explanations for this occurrence. Some African cultures believe that the earth sat on the back of a huge tortoise. Hindus believe that the earth was held on the back of an elephant. While the Greeks thought, and you remember the Greeks, you know, the the ones who gave us philosophy and all kinds of other stuff. Greeks thought that it was propped up on the back of Atlas. You all seen the picture? And of course, many Western cultures, even in the times of, of, uh, of um, enlightenment and all of that, they thought the earth was flat for a long time. God says it isn't. <laughs> the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. We've got to go on and move as quickly as we can. The inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers to the Lord. Notice that it says that also in verse 22. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens uh, like a curtain. Now, now let's, let's, let's talk about the grasshoppers here. Uh, because the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers to the Lord. And this is actually comforting. It is a comforting thought to God's people. That he considers that, that they are, uh, uh, the, the people of the earth are like grasshoppers. Because you see, one time, at one time in Numbers chapter 13... When, when uh, uh, they sent out the spies into the promised land, Moses sent out the spies. Joshua and Caleb came back and they said, man, let's go get them. We can do it. We can take them. Our God's with us. We can, we can do it. But the other spies, you know what they said? Oh, no, we, well, we can't do it, you know. Uh, as a matter of fact, look at what they said here in verse 33 of Numbers 13. The, uh, there we saw the giants, the descendants of Enoch came from the giants. And, and we were like grasshoppers in, in our own sight. Notice, in their sight. <laughs> We were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. <laughs> we were like grasshoppers. So God is saying, oh, by the way, you were like grasshoppers in their sight, but the world is like grasshoppers in mine. Just thought I'd let you know, just to comfort you. So he said, in effect, you might have felt like grasshoppers, but they're grasshoppers. And as he pointed out in verse 23, the rulers of the world, well, let's, before we get on to 23, look, look at, at the end of verse 22. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. This is scientific as well, folks. There was a British uh, scientist, I believe his name, if I'm not mistaken, was Sir James Jeans. And, 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 and uh, he discovered that the galaxies are moving outward. Moving outward. And, and the idea here is that as everything is moving outward, it means that it had a, a, a single place of origin heavy duty a single place of origin of creation and out from there the galaxies pull out like curtains it's biblical just thought I'd throw that in that's free okay where are we all right Getting back to verse 23 now, because here it says that he brings the princes to nothing. And I've got to really, really go fast here. But uh, here he says that the rulers of the world, no matter how tall they may stand under God's rule, they will come crashing down in just a, a, a moment. They're like plants, you see, that, that have barely taken root and begun to grow when they wither under the sweltering impact of the wind. What is the wind? The breath of the Lord. 
the breath of the Lord. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Bottom of verse 24, or middle of verse 24, when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. Notice in Isaiah chapter 17, that thought was also given to us back then. Verse 13, the nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Have you ever felt so small that you wondered if God really cares about you? Have you ever felt so small that you, that you wondered if God really cares about you personally? Then just consider this. Jumping down to verse 26. Consider that he knows the name of every star. Look at verse 26. First of all, he asks the question in verse 25, To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal? And it says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them by name. The hosts are the, the stars. Who bring out their host by number, he calls them by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Not one star is missing. The only reason why it seems like they're missing to us is pollution and light. That's the only reason why it doesn't seem like... But they're all there. God knows. Every star is where it's supposed to be. And by the way, why did I bring this up about God caring about us? Because you see, if he knows the name of every star, he knows our name too. John 10, verse 3, Jesus said to him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Aren't you glad that he knows you by name? In John 10, verse 27, same chapter, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. God knows us by name. The same God who names and numbers the stars can also heal your broken heart. Turn to Psalm 147, verses 3 and 4. He heals the brokenhearted and He binds up their wounds. Notice verse 4. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them by name. All of that is important to God. If He can number the stars, if He can uh, name the stars, He can heal us. He heals the brokenhearted. You see how great our God is? That it isn't just that He's so awesome and so big and so great and so grand and, uh, and, and glorious. He heals us. He cares about us. Well, I can go on, but I've got to finish. The last passage in this chapter now is saying to Israel and to Judah that the greatness and glory and grandeur of God is good reason to be of good cheer. It is good reason to really latch on to the good news. In other words, they needed to receive the good news of their God to deliver and to save. That is the good news. Look at verse uh, 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's a wonderful verse of Scripture. We see it on, on all kinds of stuff, you know, in, in the Christian bookstores. Great verse of Scripture. Wonderful verse of Scripture. But getting back to verse 27, these were the groaning cries, you see, of a people under the conditions of captivity and exile. They were the people who were supposed to believe in their Creator God, but were in fact living as practical atheists. In other words, they said they believed, but they didn't believe. 
Is it possible to believe in the infinite power of God and at the same time feel that He's unable to meet our personal needs? A lot of people that go to church are that way. They, they, they believe, they, they believe in, in, in the infinite power of God, but then they don't believe that He's able to meet their, their personal needs. What's wrong with this picture, in other words? Instead of praising the Lord, the people were complaining that God acted as if He didn't know about their situation or could care less about their problems. They wouldn't look for the open door. They weren't looking for that at all. All they saw was this long, depressing road ahead of them to face alone. Here we go into captivity. Oh, But they even complained they had no strength for this journey before, uh, before them. Was God asking them to do the impossible? Listen carefully. Was God asking them to do the impossible? Has God been asking us to do the impossible? Was He telling them that they had to go it alone? Has He ever told us that we had to go it alone? Look at verses 28 and 29. There's those questions again. Have you not known? Have you not heard? In other words, the, the thing is, you're supposed to know this. The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. He is inexhaustible in strength. And so His people will receive from Him something that far surpasses all human power. And we know this by experience. We know this because of what God has done in our lives. He's done things, and by the way, we have done things with a power that we did not really have. Right? I'm not trying to conjure up an answer here. I just want to know that you know that God has given you strength to do things that you never realized you had the strength to do. Young men in this particular passage are seen as, as, as men of strength. You know, Proverbs 20, 29 says the glory of young men is their strength. But then it also tells us that even young men grow weary and are prone to stumble and fall because human strength has its limitations. We can never obey the Lord in our own strength, you see. But we can always trust Him for the strength that we need. We can always trust Him for the strength that we need. Philippians 4.13, you all know it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. To wait upon the Lord, by the way, as we get into verse 31, to wait upon the Lord does not mean to sit around all day long and do nothing. Some people think that. Wait upon the Lord. Are you doing anything? No, I can't go right now because I'm waiting on the Lord. To wait on the Lord does not mean to sit around all day and do nothing. The word wait, by the way, literally means to hope. It means to hope, to look to God for all that we need. So hope, hope on, in the Lord. And then renew, the word renew means to exchange, as in taking off old clothes and putting on new clothes. And by the way, that exchange, renew, means put on good and clean and fresh clothes. We exchange our weakness for His power. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That, would, that is what Paul tells us in Romans 13. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 12 verses 9 and 10 says, And he said to me, Paul says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. I'm almost done, by the way. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, 
in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Exchange. Renew. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Strength to soar above everything in this life. They shall run and not be weary. Strength to move forward and progress for Him. This is a great pattern to follow here. Walk and not faint. Soar, run, walk. You might say, wait a minute. That seems a little backwards. We walk, don't we? And then we run. And if we run fast enough, we can soar. You get that picture? But that's not what it said here. That's not what's said here. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They soar first. They shall run and not be weary. They run then after, and they shall walk and not faint. Something wrong with this order? Not one bit. Perfect. I'm going to close with this. Ephesians chapter 2. Turn there first. Because this is how God works in us. This is what God does for us. What is the first thing that He does when He saves us? Look at Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He has caused us to soar first. Y'all see that? I'm excited about this. You can be excited about it if you want. I know it's 15 till 9, but I don't care. I'm, I'm, I, I, I just love the very fact that we soar first because He saved us. And then, and then in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now we run. We're sorry there in heaven. But here we run. We're casting aside all of our sin, casting aside all of these weights so we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. And lastly, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Soar, run, and walk. Wonderful order. We start with Him first. We run the race with endurance. But as we grow, we walk, walk, walk with Him. Let's pray.